Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. With us, Bill Lee. One of the last things Vice Chairman Clarida said to me, please say hello to Bill Lee. Uh, again, with all his good academic work at Columbia, his public service to the IMF, particularly in Hong Kong, Bill Lee with us on uh, the comments of the vice chairman and the choice set forward. Let me start right with the immediate on a Friday, which is there will be a Friday soon, Dr. Lee, where we get another jobs report in America. Alan Ruskin at Deutsche Bank really emphasizing in his note the importance of this next print on a weaker labor economy. How weak is the American labor economy? That's the key question, and that's the one that, that I think Rich tried to dodge but hinted to you that they were very concerned with. Because right now, the weakness is in the traded sector and in investment uh, business fixed investment. And those are the things that are weakening around the world because of these trade uncertainties. The service sector is really quite strong, and that's the bifurcated economy we have. And what Richards was trying to say was, you know, even though we're not meeting our inflation targets, we're still concerned about backstopping the economy. And and the thing that he said that was really interesting that you got him to say was, our models are linear, but we, the policymakers, recognize nonlinearities. That, to me, says they're ready to do 50 basis points. They just need the right clue and the right hint and the right nudge. Let's go a little math here then. We talk about inertial force. It's physics envy in your world of PhD economics. Clarida is definitive on this. Okay, that's the physics. Our listeners aren't living physics. They're living the American reality, which is they want somebody to do something. Can the Fed do anything? Or are there other institutions? You know, it's not the cost of capital that matters for business to invest. They want to say, I want to invest because I'm going to make money. And and if I don't have growth, I'm not going to make money. So they want the Fed to backstop the economy and give them confidence that no matter what happens, they're going to put the floor, the pedals to the metal, and and, and also make sure the U.S. economy and the global economy grows. And to overcome the trade tensions and the restraint on investment, the Fed is going to do whatever it takes, including multiple rate cuts. Well, they're going to do multiple rate cuts as well. What, what, is the, what is the impact of a first rate cut and then that second rate cut, whether together or separate? What actually will happen? In order to build the confidence, you can't be tepid. And so I think what, what Rich is saying by saying that the policymakers are nonlinear means we've got to do something big to confirm the, the sense that we have the economy backstop. So we're going to do a major confidence-building gesture. Well, they're going to do a confidence-building gesture. That's all great and well. But as he opened our discussion, he thinks it's a 2% economy. Now, others think it may come down. No, no. They'll clearly Tom, adjust. Tom, he said it was and it has been a 2% economy. Okay. Looking forward, I'm glad somebody sure. listened to the interview. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> we're not sure where the economy is going. And, I think, and that's the key to the first question, which is if employment starts to kick over, that means right. that the metastasis into the service sector is showing up in the labor markets, and that will get them to move. Explain the internationalist moment. I mean, I'm in that special library, that little room with the original Federal Reserve table stuck in a corner. The books are overwhelming in that library. First editions of Veblen, et cetera, just extraordinary um, uh, uh, library. None of the stuff in that library is what we're dealing with now, right? 
as, as Rich said, we have that history, but boy, those tactics that, and strategies they recommend don't longer apply. When I was on the board staff, I used to sneak into that library to look around, and it is so impressive. But all those theories give us the framework, but we now have to change the strategies on how to implement that framework in order to get the economy going, especially in this globalized economy where the ECB is, is saying we're going to do whatever it takes. The BOJ has got negative rates. What do we as the U.S. Federal Reserve do? We're, uh, I, I have like eight more questions, uh, Bill Lee, but I've got to go to the moment in Hong Kong. You were one of the definitive experts on the actual business and economy of Hong Kong with your leadership at the IMF and basically setting up their Hong Kong watch uh, years ago. Your thoughts on the protests in Hong Kong? This is a, a, a Hong Kong that has been catalyzed and galvanized to worry about their independence. It wasn't there when I was there and has suddenly developed. And one thing that you should notice is the people doing this are the young people, and they are concerned about what their future is going to be. A generational shift. Bill Lee, thank you so much. With the Milken Institute, their chief economist, far more than that, out of Columbia and uh, the good work of economics. This is an important interview on any given Friday because over the weekend, we do what we do. It may be on the kitchen, maybe on the back deck, maybe in the car, watching Offspring play sports. You speak to Leslie Falconio or you read her literature and that of UBS about what to do. It's this asset allocation game, and it's uh, important always and even more important now. Leslie Falconio uh, with UBS Wealth Management trying to figure out how to move the money around. Leslie, quite a week. Is this week adjusted your core asset belief? Listen, I mean, you, you really hit the nail on the head. It's been quite a week. And, you know, the market, although, was dovish going into the Fed, you know, there's no question that the out, the outcome was even more dovish than, than we had anticipated. So this was the, a dovish no-cut um, in the scenario that we had, had seen. And I think that, you know, for us at UBS, I mean, we'd be the first to admit that initially we did not anticipate the Fed to, we knew that they wouldn't do anything in June, but we also didn't expect them to do anything really for the majority of the year, given the fact yeah. that our second, second quarter GDP was much higher. So, you know, I think that the market was definitely caught off a bit guard in terms of uh, the amount of the decline in the dot right. even though the median stayed, stayed the same. Um, you know, but I, but what do this. I do with my money this week? Is it, it, is it steady as she goes for UBS? Or do you actually make a bond equity reallocation given price up, yield down in bonds? So we've, we've been overweight equity to fixed income, and we continue to be overweight to equity to fixed income, you know, because, again, our, our outlook is for, you know, slower growth, but, but can, continued fundamental growth in the U.S. So we like the equity over fixed income. Yeah. We've also, however, had this overlay in terms of, if you want to call it the quote-unquote equity hedge that, you know, that investors have in terms of just as, as, a, as a sheer protection against a, you know, a business cycle that has, is reaching, you know, World War II historical expansions that, you know, we had this hedge. So this has actually worked out quite well for UBS because we've had this equity long and we've had uh, a long treasury yeah. hedge. And given what we've seen with rates, you look like geniuses. Well. I tell you. <laughs> I, I, I mean, and, I, mean, I, I want to get math here, folks, on a Friday. So let me translate what the pro just said. I'm in the stock market, but I'm buying fixed income paper to hedge my 
enthusiasm about the stock market. You got, Leslie, price up, yield down. How many basis points of performance did you get from bonds nailing this call? Did you actually pick up 100 basis points a gain? Uh, close to that, yeah. I mean, we did actually, we did, we've done very well with that. And actually, what's interesting about this is if you look at, you know, how many people sort of, you know, ex the correlation between, you know, equity and, and fixed income, because post-Brexit, as interest rates normalized, you had yields going up, right, and equities going down. So at that point in time, it, such, such as we saw, it was a difficult allocation. But as things do, they mean revert. And over the longer term, the, uh, the longer <laughs> treasury is the best hedge against equity. Okay, the, yes, equity. Let's talk about the stock market. I know there's like IPO frenzy and you know all that. Can a conservative investor buy revenue growth? I mean, is it so overpriced that you can't buy the fangs or the sort of fangs or the kind of like fangs? I mean, are they on a valuation basis so out of reach that it's silly for a conservative investor? I don't necessarily say it's 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 out of reach, but it's definitely I would call it very full. And, you know, maybe part of the, the incremental gains going forward may be as limited uh, versus what they were. But it, it's just getting to the point where it's getting definitely getting a bit toppy. Oh, it's getting a bit toppy as well. So then where do you go? I mean, I wasn't getting a stock strategy from Richard Clarida, but um, clearly the street has been defensive. I know your, your good uh, competitors at Bank of America had an exceptionally gloomy, long-only buy-side report this week of what people are actually doing with their money. Do you see that? Do you see people running from equities into bonds? Um, well, actually, I mean, when you think about it, especially over the past this week, you know, there's, there's, there's always this fear factor. But, you know, we think that, you know, fixed income is actually a, a bit rich to equity, particularly with the decline in the yields that we've seen. Yeah. So, again, I mean, so we still prefer over the longer term, you know, equity to fixed income. Um, you know, it's, and it's, it's one of these things where for yeah. our, you know, our equity portfolios, we always have this type of strategy where, I mean, we will always have this overweight and we'll always have sort of the fixed income against it. But when you look at how you, how much yields have fallen and the fact that the market is expecting much lower growth than what, than we, what we actually are, fundamentally, it's just better, be, better to be allocated okay. to equity at this time. You knew, you knew right where I was going. Folks, this is so important. And you heard it particularly in the first third of the discussion, the conversation with the vice chairman. This is the recession call of 2020. I'm not hearing that from UBS, uh, Leslie. I certainly didn't hear it from the vice chairman. I mean, that's coloring everything on the street is a certain set of our listeners believe in a recession, don't they? They absolutely do. And I think that's a really great point because what you, when, what you look at in terms of what's pricing in for the Fed fund futures or the Fed funds you know, the next, for the rest of this year, what they're baking in is a f- much more than what we're anticipating. So it's much more than, you know, an ounce of protection, you know, is a pound of cure. Um, but they're actually pricing in something that we really, really believe that the market thinks is a little bit too recessionary in our view. So it's not that as though we don't believe that the Fed will ease. We just think the market is pricing in too much of an ease. And what does that do to revenue growth? Man, I don't want you to be a securities analyst here, but I think this is really important, folks. You can take Oracle in the news this week or any other company. There's a revenue belief in growth. And if you have a doom and gloom view, you bring your top line down. Is everybody brought their top lines down and that folds right into asset allocation, doesn't it, Leslie? It does. It absolutely does. And and I, I think that, you know, again, you know, 
the the having interest rates lower and obviously having the Fed move methodically without a potential, in our view, recession in the near term is, is very favorable for equity. Well, it's very favorable for equity. But uh, I mean, come on, let me get I got to get the Bloomberg out here, Leslie, to do this. It's too fancy math on Friday uh, here. SPX year to date up. Uh, we're only up 18 percent year to date. <laughs> Did that like are you out there telling people we're going up 36 percent this year? No, not at all. I love, no. I love busting your shops like that, Leslie. <laughs> Can we extrapolate out to year end? <laughs> I know. If you know, if you annualize that, that looks very attractive. But no, we are not. We're not. We're not saying that at all. Maybe another three to four percent going so forward. So what do you and- do? I mean, if I'm in this, I'm at UBS. I listen to you. I listen to um, uh, Jeffrey. U. da 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 da. Everything's great. What about going to cash right now and just sitting out the year? That you, we don't recommend that, do we? No, I said, listen, you know, it's, it's, it, we don't. And we, we did have a cash position in terms of a barbell for a fixed income, meaning that we had cash and we had long-end treasuries. And the reason why we had that was, as you're well aware, that, you know, for a long period of time, we've had this three-month, 10-year inversion. So going into a cash-type product was actually yielding much more than it had previously. So that wasn't actually a horrible allocation that, that you know, people in the industry for years know that something that you don't want to do for a long period of time. But given the fact that we had this barbell, it actually who worked that well because we had the yields coming down in the long end. We were actually also earning that incremental carry yeah. because that you know the cash and one year bill, given the yield curve was so flat, actually was fairly attractive. Yeah, this folks, I, I I hope folks, this has been helpful on a Friday because every pro, including I can speak for the vice chairman, everybody's head is spinning over what we think we we've observed this week. Really beginning with the Mario Draghi speech. But then you actually got to fold it over to like, okay, what do I do with my small pot? And the answer is what we heard there from uh, Ms. Falconio is just one example of one view, in that case, a UBS view of I would call relative optimism. Leslie Falconio, senior fixed income strategist, had a tactical fixed income allocation at UPS. That was just brilliant. Without question, this is the interview of the day. He is Daniel Jurgen, always joining us in Davos, but at other select times through the year when it truly matters. We are honored that Dr. Jurgen could join us uh, today. The author of Commanding Heights, the author of The Quest, and before that, the definitive moment for so many of us in the oil crisis is magisterial the prize. Dan Jurgen, I want to talk about your underrated book, The Quest. Everybody focuses. You have to, on campus, folks, if you're cool, you have to walk around with a copy of the prize just so you're, you know, like you're cool. The Quest, I remember reading it and going, this is just as good or better than the prize. And through it, you know, in the middle of the quest, you go right to where we are right now, which is the shifting sands in the Persian Gulf in terms of securing the supply. Let's begin with first principles. Dan Jurgen, do we need Iran's oil? Uh, we don't need Iran's oil. Iran's oil has been part of the world market. But uh, what is surprising is uh, how well the market has adjusted to yeah. the cessation both of Iranian oil and, and, and Venezuelan oil. You have always been a measured voice. I have the clearest memory of the hysteria of $90, $100, $110 a barrel. You were like, 
way thing, you know, the economics will play out. You were always calming. Can you be calm now with what you've witnessed over the last two weeks in the Hormuz and in the Persian Gulf? Well, first, Tom, the re- part of the reason for reaction is I really do believe price actually matters. People forget that price matters and that it affects how people make decisions and what happens in the markets. Uh, I think that we are seeing a pattern of kind of call it sporadic uh, escalation. Uh, a number of different things happen. It's not just in the Gulf. It's uh, uh, it's drones, uh, missile attacks in Saudi Arabia. It's uh, 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 rockets yeah. in, in yeah. Iraq into where American companies are operating. So I, I think this is uh, a, a rising uh, tension. And, uh, and really, the Iranians, I think, are saying they're really feeling squeezed right now, and they have many different mechanisms uh, through which to respond, and I think we're seeing some of them. Speak to Americans, our listeners coast to coast, and frankly, speak to the gentleman just down the street in our Washington studios at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. When people suggest Iran is a threat, how do you respond? I think that Iran is uh, continue to develop its missile programs, the Revolutionary Guards has a, a program and talks about all the Arab capitals that it's capturing. So I think there's a struggle for influence and power and hegemony going on in the Middle East, and Iran is 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 uh, very much in, engaged in that. At the heart of it right now probably comes down to an Iranian-Saudi uh, struggle uh, for preeminence, but on top of that, of course, is the uh, ending of the, or the backing away from the nuclear agreement, and Iran is just exporting a paltry number of barrels right now, and I think this is part of their response. And they're probably also looking down the, the road and saying, well, we've got about a year and a half to go uh, until maybe there's a new president in the United States. We are, Well, let's, let's go. That's right where I wanted to go with the heritage of Daniel Jurgen, the prize, those moments in the prize, those vignettes of new people showing up in the Middle East. One of our things of Persia the Shah that some of us older lived, and then moving on from the Shah, is a separation of religion and culture in Iran from a fairly complex and successful economy that was in Iran. How do you partition the people of Iran, the economy of Iran, from the religious extreme and the religious leaders of Iran? I think the understanding is that you have a young generation that really uh, – wants to be part of a different world, doesn't want to be part of this world that was created in 1979 with the imposition of the theocratic regime. But the instruments of power are all in the hands of the theocracy, and they continue uh, to wield them. And the economy, of course, is in pretty bad shape right now uh, because of uh, the sanctions. And even without the sanctions, mismanagement of the economy, corruption and everything like that. So uh, Iran's economy is, is, is suffering. One final question, if I could, Dr. Jurgen, and that would be to harken back to your exquisite effort, Commanding Heights. I kid you every year at Davos that we need to see a second edition of that I know. as soon as possible. <laughs> How do the Commanding Heights look right now from 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue? Well, I think that uh, from that, that, that it's a. Uh, there's a question about how much 
of the commanding heights does the person who's the uh, top commander command? And uh, in terms Come of. Come on, he had an know. Iran attack going on, and he brought, I believe, the New York Times reports, he canceled the mission while the planes were in the air. Yeah. I, I stand corrected if I'm wrong. Well, I think I, I'm thinking about in terms of the economy, what you've been talking about, sure. the relationship with the Fed. But I think that um, that he doesn't, I mean, there he, there's obviously disagreement in the administration about what to do. And this is an uncertain territory where you don't know where it's going to end no. up. And what are your goals at the end of the day? Daniel Jurgen, thank you so much. Do we have a new book coming out? Can we? Well, I, I did send in a manuscript yesterday. Oh, yesterday. Literally about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. A hint, you know? Well, it's a kind theme? Of some of these themes we've just been talking oh, about. Oh, we'll leave it there. <laughs> Daniel Jurgen with a top secret manuscript. It's out there somewhere, uh, folks, and we await uh, that publication here six months, maybe uh, when you're out. Daniel Jurgen, look for the movie Commanding Heights, 4th of July in IMAX. We are thrilled to have that uh, with us as well. This has been, even by recent standards, a busy week for market participants. We've had, uh, of course, uh, Fed's uh, comments coming out earlier this week. Geopolitical issues always in play, including over the last 12 to 24 hours. And then, of course, uh, the trade uh, issues with Mexico and China with the G20 coming up. To get a sense how one professional is factoring all these into uh, the investment outlook. We welcome our next guest, Diane Jaffe. Uh, Diane is a group managing director uh, of the Relative Value Group at TCW. Uh, Diane, thanks so much for joining us. Let's just start with the Fed. What did you make of the Fed's comments this week? I think they um, acknowledge the fact that uh, market participants are worried about um, global growth, U.S. growth specifically, and now we have to add Iran, potentially Iran strikes to the list of their worries. Exactly. And so the, the issue is, do you feel, I, I guess the question is, do you feel like the Fed is on top of this in terms of, okay, we're going to keep the rates kind of where we are, but we are clearly opening the door to address rates going forward? Absolutely. That is one of their goals is to, you know, instill uh, confidence in the U.S. markets. And so uh, that's a very important point right now. So on the geopolitical front, it just uh, obviously it just seems to be a front burner issue uh, all the time. And of course, over the last 12 to 24 hours with Iran, how do you factor the volatility that these seems to be escalating geopolitical issues play on the markets? It does give us um, more opportunity. We're bottom-up fundamental investors, so we're in it for our clients for the next uh, one to two years in terms of the investment process prospects for the individual holdings. Um, so it does give us opportunities to uh, nip and tuck around the edges. So it's interesting. One of the issues, uh, Diane, is you know kind of the impact that the president and, uh, and the president's tweets have on short-term moves in the market. Again, we had uh, some more tweets from President Trump this morning. How do you factor that in? I know you're a, a long-term investor, but it just seems to introduce a layer of volatility into the marketplace uh, that can be unnerving for some. We had one of our analysts do um, a scenario analysis going back to uh, early 2018 when Trump started tweeting quite a bit about China and tariffs. And we noticed that um, with a high degree of statistical significance that if the markets were down five days preceding, um, he was less likely to tweet about China and tariffs. Um, 
it has a TSTAT score of you know 2.6, which is quite high, and so it, we would be less likely to anticipate a China tariff tweet if um, the markets were down. I think this is his long-term game, as he, of course, has the advantage of being the incumbent running into 2020, but he needs the economy yeah. and he needs the markets to be behind him. D- Diane, good morning, and just thrilled to have you on with, with decades of portfolio management. and long. I mean, Ms. Jaffe, folks, doesn't want to ever admit this, but long ago and far away, you know, 10 years ago or so, she was a security analyst as well. You know, Diane, that it does come down to revenue dynamics. Just as a summary of the last 30 days, there's going to be a recession. We're all going to die. Revenue is going to be terrible. I know at TCW you don't buy that, but what will be the lessening of revenue as you look out over a year or two in the stock market? Business uncertainty, of course, is what will directly lead to capital expenditures um, being down, and that is something that we are watching quite clearly. Um, If you look at the uh, small business economic um, expectations for capital expenditures, they are up um, for uh, since early uh, January, but they are down since last August. And I think tariffs have created uh, business uncertainty about where they should, uh, if there is the demand, um, put their manufacturing capabilities. So, Diane, I know you're in the uh, relative value group at TCW. Where do you folks see value rel- relative value now? We, um, you know, so one of the uh, unsung heroes over the last couple of days of uncertainty, of course, have been energy stocks. And one of our disciplines is always to maintain exposure to all the major economic sectors. And while sometimes um, it seems like, hey, you should be completely out of energy or completely out of another economic sector, we always try to find the best names within every sector. And uh, that has turned to be quite fruitful for our clients over the last few days. Diane Jaffe, thank you so much. Uh, Diane is a group managing director of Relative Value Group at TCW, joining us on the phone. There are those that talk and there are those that do. We were thrilled to have joining us in our studios in New York earlier this week. General McChrystal, we now finish the week strong with Admiral Stravitas. James Stravitas, of course, with his public service in the Navy and with NATO, and then at Tufts in their Fletcher School, and now with the Carlisle Group, James Stravitas, uh, at an important moment for the nation. Uh, Admiral, you always speak in grace of the public institution, the executive, the president, who is also our commander-in-chief. If I look at the definitive Eric Larrabee one volume on Franklin Delano Roosevelt, I just don't think I would have seen a tweet on cocked and loaded or locked and loaded from the gentleman from another time and place. Simply your thoughts on the execution of our military policy by tweet. It's so unhelpful, Tom, and, uh, you know, to throw another book back at you, but the new biography of Winston Churchill, Walking with Destiny by Andrew Roberts, I think addresses what Churchill did very well, which was to gather his allies about him, come up with a plan, and then rock steady, carry it through. Um, When you're taking these espresso shots of tweet after tweet after tweet, it's very difficult for the military to execute 
and more importantly, it's difficult for our allies to follow, and it encourages our opponents. I want to make clear, folks, that this is delicate for the admiral. He was, of course, vetted as a vice presidential candidate the last time around. There was some talk of that as well. How do people like you respond to this who are still wearing the uniform? What does the Joint Chiefs do? What do the line officers do on our ships on soil in the Middle East when they see this action by a president? They are, at this point, two and a half years into it, they recognize the unpredictability, the variability of the decision process. And they're also concerned, Tom, about the lack of a civilian leader in the form of a secretary of defense. At the moment, we don't have uh, a fully vetted, seated, congressionally approved secretary of defense. These are the moments when you really wish former General Jim Mattis were in the chair. Yeah. To answer the question, what our troops do in the field, however, is operate well, professionally, and they, they will continue to do that. Admiral, let me bring in my colleague, Paul Sweeney, in New York. Paul? Thank you, Tom. Admiral, what do you think, uh, separate from what just happened over the last 12 to 24 hours with the strike and then the non-strike, what do you think is Iran's strategy here? Iran is simply working their way up the ladder of escalation, hoping over time to produce an effect of a reduction in the sanctions. And they, they will continue to do that. They're taking a page out of Kim Jong-un's playbook and deciding that uh, the path to attention is to continue this type of offensive escalatory pattern. So unfortunately, I don't see this diminishing. And I think we're going to continue to, to see, we're going to continue to see challenge ahead. So given that is the case, that is the strategy of Iran, how do you think, or what do you believe the U.S. strategy is right now? Do we have a definitive strategy from your perspective? I don't think we do, and that's our problem. I'll tell you three things quickly we ought to be doing is working more with our allies, our partners, and our friends. We've got to get this out of a U.S. versus Iran and get it into a global community versus Iran. Drones are one thing, but when you're blowing up tankers, um, that ought to galvanize the international community. Secondly, we need to give the president more options than just a tomahawk strike, and that means cyber activity, offensive cyber, special operations, CIA. Give him more options and tools that he can deploy. And thirdly, and you'll understand this at Bloomberg, we've got to get the private sector working with us. At the end of the day, keeping this straight open is going to be uh, escorting tankers, protecting them, that's going to require working with the international maritime community. There's three things we ought to be doing that would form the basis of a strategy. I don't see that so far. So, Admiral, just give us a sense from your experience. Uh, the U.S. Navy, there's a carrier group over there in that part of the world. That seems like when you look at it on the map, how, how narrow that strait of the Hormuz is, and yeah. it seems very close quarters. Give us a sense of what it's like to serve uh, in a hot area in that part of the world. So I commanded a carrier strike group built on the uh, carrier enterprise. I've commanded destroyers and cruisers in and out of that waterway. When you go through the Strait of Hormuz, you are at general quarters. Every man and woman in the ship is up, awake. Battle stations are manned. It's very, very dangerous. Yeah. And as the temperatures go up, as the summer heats up, decision-making gets harder and harder. Um, right. Look for trouble ahead. 
Admiral, I, I want to try to take this down to a granular moment. I may be wrong that the USS Bunker Hill CG-52 is on service somewhere in the vicinity of the Persian Gulf. That's one report I have from weeks ago, Admiral. Maybe that's true, maybe it's not. But it's something you know, the Ticonderoga-class guided missile cruiser. It's not getting the press of the George Washington or the big aircraft carriers. What's it like on one of those smaller ships at sea, as Paul mentioned, in the heat of the Persian Gulf? Yeah, so you're loaded up with Tomahawk missiles. That's principally what you have. It's a a missile that will go 1,500 miles. It's so accurate we can choose which window to fly it through in a building. You are up 24-7. You're watching for Iranian uh, small boats that are harassing you. Your sonar is trying to make sure an Iranian diesel boat doesn't sneak up on you. Everybody's tired. It's, It's extremely intense operations you know you're on the forefront of defending your nation. Is, is our Navy and the you know, military in general, are they overextended now with exhaustion, or as you mentioned, with the lack of coordinated effort in Washington, is there an urgency to get a more cohesive plan because of ship exhaustion? There is indeed, and we saw evidence of that last summer with the terrible collisions, the two Arleigh Burke-class uh, destroyers. We lost 17 sailors in simple collisions at sea. Clearly, exhaustion is part of that. The Navy's trying to address it. Bottom mm. line, Tom, we don't have enough ships. We only have 275 ships to cover the planet Earth. We need at least 350 by every study. That is the principal way you solve the exhaustion problem. Well, Admiral, this has been an honor to have you on with us today and General McChrystal a few days ago. Stravitas of Carlisle Group uh, with us as well. Paul, you know, we do economics, finance, and investment, but uh, I I must say it's important to have these authorities on our military reach uh, with us today. Yeah, absolutely, Tom. It's an honor to have the Admiral on and giving us uh, what are clearly, you know, very well-informed thoughts of what it's like to be serving uh, right now uh, in the Gulf at this time of uh, uncertainty. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.